Welcome everyone to another episode of the Dine Sports Podcast on the Dine Sports Podcast Network. Today we're going to be talking all things hoops and go figure the NBA has decided to try and slide a whole bunch of newsworthy topics on a Friday afternoon just as we're getting prepared to release this episode. Two major headlines breaking. The first one, Michael Jordan is putting up the Charlotte Hornets for sale currently in the final stages of selling it over to an investment group led by Gabe Plotkin and Rick Schnall. Schnall himself is the co-president at a private equity firm in New York and is currently a minority owner with the Atlanta Hawks. So he's got some NBA experience there already. While Gabe Plotkin is actually already a minority owner of the Hornets, he purchased a stake in the franchise from Michael Jordan back in 2020. Currently, legal teams putting the final touches on that sale and official announcement is expected next week. No financial details have been released. However, Michael Jordan obviously expected to turn a massive profit on his initial investment. He ended up purchasing a majority stake in the franchise back in 2010 for $275 million. I've seen some huge figures get floated out as far as how much the rest of the stake that he just sold for will ultimately amount to, but nothing confirmed as of yet. Safe to say, though, you can probably add a comma to his uh, sale total there. And once again, everything his airness touches seems to turn to gold. Bit of a complicated history there with the Hornets. Obviously, Michael himself from the area went to UNC, has been a staple for that organization. He's actually the only majority black owner across all the NBA franchises. So that's now going to be coming to an end as well. Initial reports indicating that he is going to maintain a minority stake in the team, still have a presence, still be around the organization moving forward. But the days of him steering the ship are over. And unfortunately, not a whole lot of success on the court to be able to point towards only a handful of playoff appearances in total during his 13 years at the helm, all of them resulting in first round exits. A lot of high lottery draft picks, a lot of high lottery draft picks that haven't panned out. Hopefully things will change next week when the NBA draft takes place. Charlotte currently holding the second overall pick. The deal, even though it's leaked already, can't become official, obviously, until the NBA Board of Governors votes on the matter and ratifies the new ownership group coming in, though, because it is a minority owner who's already been approved within the franchise, getting extra equity in Plotkin, and then Rick Schnall, who's already been vetted via the Atlanta Hawks and his stake with that organization. It should be a relatively straightforward process, getting rubber stamped through, but MJ expected to continue to run and oversee operations with the Hornets at least until July. So that would cover both the NBA draft coming up and the start of free agency on July 1st. One would have to assume that both Schnall and Plotkin are going to have a uh, bit of behind-the-scenes influence on how those draft picks and acquisitions go. But for now, at least the face of what's going on is still going to be Jordan himself for the next couple of weeks. Then the second bombshell that dropped today... Not entirely unexpected, but it was mostly the number that fans were waiting to hear from was the John Morant suspension. NBA Commissioner Adam Silver announcing that that total is going to be 25 games to start off the 2023-24 NBA season. For those of you who don't know or haven't been following this saga, all of these are just self-inflicted wounds by Morant here. Back in March, was suspended eight games for brandishing a firearm on social media. Sat out, did the mea culpa. A few episodes ago, I went on a giant rant about Morant himself there. Fast forward about two months, all of a sudden, boom, another firearm on Instagram Live. Just dumb decisions, not making smart choices. He's 23 years old, but people around him obviously not having a great effect on him and that thought process. But all that to say, Adam Silver announcing 25 games also makes him ineligible for the preseason and team activities. As part of his reinstatement, he'll also need to jump through a few hoops off the court as well, too. While that hasn't been laid out in explicit detail in the commissioner's initial statement, sounding like some counseling, some regular check-ins with NBA head office, one could assume a, a big mea culpa apology coming up as well, too. But we shall see. Already making the rounds on the blogosphere and social media is, you know, is 25 games enough? Is it just right? Is it too much? As you can imagine, good old Twitter split into multiple camps on that front some think hey you know it's america you're allowed to own handguns more power to you others think hey he got off way too easy kids look up to him wherever you fall on that spectrum 
the the rumors that we're kind of hearing and for those who have sources within nba head offices this heavier handed approach shouldn't be a surprise to anyone adam silver you know he met with ja morant after that first incident spoke with him felt that he was genuine in his apology fast forward a couple of weeks and sees now the second video surface online and silver reportedly feeling kind of personally betrayed right he he kind of put himself out there and vouched for him and took him at face value that he was going to make changes. And so he's kind of viewing that as a bit of a slap in the face and fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. You can pretty much guarantee there's not going to be a third strike here, though. As talented as Ja Morant is, if we get him back and there's all of a sudden something else that happens, at least with regard to firearms here, I, I, I think you could be looking at the end of his career in the NBA because there's just too much money at stake and Adam Silver isn't going to be made out to be a fool in such a public manner time after time after time there's a, there's a shelf life for that and he's quickly burned through his bridges and goodwill there so 25 games for ja morant more than that you crunch the numbers ja is costing himself what many would consider already generational wealth he's obviously going to be continuing to make money as he moves forward with his career however just in the amount he's forfeited and will be forfeiting staggering amounts you break it down 23 years old his rookie max deal kicking in this year so if you just look at the 25 games he's going to sit out that's amounting to about 7.6 million dollars in salary that's now on top of the 668,659 dollars he forfeited for the eight games last year and those are just his nba game checks who knows what's happening with his endorsement deals? You know, he's got prominent multi-year agreements with Nike, Powerade, some big players. Neither of those organizations, at least, have made any kind of public statement on the matter. So we'll see how that all plays out, but could be losing quite a bit of endorsement deals. The biggest one, however, is last year he had that clause in his deal where had he made one of the All-NBA teams, so you get named one of the top 15 players in the league, which he is, which he would have been named to one of those three teams. Let's not make any debate about that. He, he would have been a lock for them. You can argue whether it was team one, two, or three, but he would have been one of those 15 best players named there. Had he been named to that, he would have seen his new deal increase from 194 million to 233 million. So he's lost $39 million right there. So you add up what he's already on paper lost, just shy of $50 million. And that's saying nothing of the endorsement deals that he might have been costing himself down the line. So again, you want to hear my full rant about it? I did a much more in-depth one a few episodes ago. You can flip back to that. But long and short of it, 25-game suspension, nearly $50 million in lost wages. Hopefully for fans of the NBA and for Ja himself, because he's a world-class talent, just needs to get it together. He is able to take this as the wake-up call that it needs to be and get his head on straight. Moving right along to the actual crux of the episode, we're continuing the basketball theme and we've got a fantastic guest coming on from New York University. We've got Professor David Hollander, whose new book, How Basketball Can Save the World, is out now. Pick it up at your local bookstore. It's online. You can order it. Phenomenal read. And it all centers around anyone who's ever played sports knows the transformational power that sports has. It's not just who won, who lost, who picked up, you know, an $8 gold medal to hang on a trophy shelf. Sports teaches you a lot about life. It teaches you how to be part of a team. It teaches you skills that you'll use well beyond your playing career days, creates networks, bonds, can uplift communities. So, so many facets to it. And really what he's trying to do in this book is demonstrate all right, here's all those things that we kind of know about, but let's put it to paper here and see how much further we can really take this. So he talks about the process of writing that, the current state of basketball, what the future holds in store for the sport as well, too. Really wide ranging interview from probably one of the most intelligent guests we've ever had on this podcast. If you check out the video version over on our YouTube, you can kind of see a couple of his many diplomas and degrees behind him there. I'm sure that wall extends another eight feet and is probably full of very prestigious awards and honors there as well, too. So he knows what he's talking about. Phenomenal author, teacher, and interview. So let's get right into it. How Basketball Can Save the World with Professor David Hollander. Joining us today on the podcast, we've got New York University professor and author of How Basketball Can Save the World, which is out everywhere now, Professor David Hollander. David, how are you doing today, sir? 
And I could not feel better. It's June. It, there's there, we're right before the fifth game of the NBA Finals. Uh, I'm I'm in heaven. I gotta say, you got any predictions for tonight? Does Denver close it out in five, or is it going back to South Beach? Yeah, I don't do predictions. I just do <laughs> enjoyment, and uh, I have been really enjoying this NBA Finals. I think it's uh, it's just beautiful basketball. Well, I think that really speaks to the fact that, you know, uh, as the media markets as well, too, kind of have a tendency to focus on the big market, you know, Lakers, Knicks, Bulls, all that. But yeah, yeah for anyone who hasn't had a chance to watch Jokic and company up close until now, like I think he's finally turning some heads as far as, oh, this is why he's won MVPs in the past. Yeah, I can't. Anybody who understands basketball, if you don't like what you're watching and Jokic and and the Nuggets and and our 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 Canadian hero uh, Jamal Murray, but also um, also Miami. I mean, that's a great team. That is a team with no quit uh, who who play together. Um, I, I just you know this is. I mean, people. Yeah, it's like uh, markets and stuff. I don't I don't know. Yeah, you know here's here's the difference. Um, uh, sorry, we're getting off on a tangent already, but um, there were there was a press conference right after I think it was the last game of the uh, of the Miami Boston series, and they were asking Jimmy Butler about his team and and uh, the role players and how important they are. And he said, "Well, I don't, I don't call them role players; I call them my teammates." Mm -hmm. And you contrast that with Game uh, Six where or, or or a game before that i can't remember where uh jason tatum uh in a post-game interview after boston won a key game said you know i'm one of the best players in the world difference mm -hmm. of frontal kind of consciousness about how they play and who they think they are well it's the difference between who's in the finals and who's not absolutely and I mean, you just mentioned it right there. We're going down a bit of a rabbit hole and we want to be conscious of the fact that this isn't going to turn into a four hour interview. So we'll steer right back towards the book here, which yes, has been out for a couple of months. Right. And, you know, you've been doing the press tours and, you know, book signings and all that. Are you still in the thick of it or is that starting to wind down a little bit for you now? Well, it's it's uh, it's been four months. Um, I was on the road um, and. Um, just these last month, I've been mostly doing things in New York City. Uh, I still, yeah, I'm still doing talks. Uh, I'm doing some stuff for the NBA. Uh, they're a very big, popular basketball organization. Um, and uh, <laughs> I might have heard of them once or twice before. Eh? <laughs> yeah, no, I've still got stuff going on. But yeah, the book tour in earnest, mm -hmm. that's that that's wow. Uh, we're in a new phase. Okay, yeah. So that ship has come to dock at this point. There, now we're on to phase two of the uh, the process. Then, That's right. and I mean, before we actually get into the book itself, because obviously we we always get forwarded all these little things, and you know, what one of the things that your publisher actually put out about you, which for those that are watching the video version of this, you can see the many accolades from academia sitting behind uh, David right now. But one <laughs> of the things they wanted to put out there was that amongst all those accolades, you actually hold your high school record for most technical fouls in a season and over a career. So yeah. what, what, what were you like as a high school basketball player? Um, just like I am now, I was a, a creatively subversive human being. Um, I always felt there was a um, plus when you don't have talent, you um, <laughs> I, no, I have, I, have I'm, I was a good player. Um, but yeah, I always felt like um, there were different ways to, uh, <laughs> get more uh competitively um i was always a positionless player I, I even though i'm 510 i always tried to play like i was 64 uh, my technical fouls weren't all verbal um they were pretty <laughs> creative um so i was a i was a player that i hope was a good teammate yeah um, and tried to do the little things um you know or whatever things needed to be done when we were doing what we needed to do to win a game. 
When you look back on it now, though, is there any one particular memorable, let's say, ejection or experience in a gym that <laughs> you, you, you kind of go back to more often than the other on your greatest hits album there? Oh, um, you know, I told one uh, for, for, uh, to troops, and I think it grossed people out. So I'm going to tell a different one. Um, <laughs> I, 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 it was the Jefferson Christmas tournament. And um, it was one of those things where they it was a close game, finals of the Christmas tournament. and um, there was a foul called no time left. So, you know, everybody clears off the court. So the guy shoots the foul shot on his own. And I said to my coach, Hey, can I just go to locker room? I don't want to watch this guy shoot the foul shot. I said, yeah, go ahead. And so I walked underneath the basket as he was releasing the shot. I simultaneously threw my warm-up pants up in the air behind the basket. As the ball's in midair, the ref indignant, Blows the whistle, says, no shot. The ball goes in. The other coach is really upset because he wanted that ball to that to count. Why should they be penalized? Because And then the whole place, just bedlam erupted. My best friend's father got in a fight with uh, uh, somebody in the stands. Like The, the place went totally. Lo- and, uh, boy, I had a good laugh. <laughs> did, he, did he make the reshoot attempt or did he miss it <laughs> i think he made both ah uh, okay um, plus kidding. plus the technical foul <laughs> yeah yeah so okay well that's a pretty good one there and you know you avoided the gross out story so that, that's got to count as well too but yeah. you know as as a premise here right like why basketball for your book here like why not soccer hockey lacrosse you know something else like what is it about basketball as a sport that made you want to sit down and really put pen to paper for this process i love all sports i tell my students that you can get great things great values great lessons learn um deep uh, um uh, lifelong um uh, learnings from all different sports i like basketball in particular because of the the totality uh, of of principles that come from the game, um, meaning, you know, there's no other sport that, in its fullest elongation, is this small team sport, and it only five people on five people, and the smallness of the space and the intimacy of the communication, um, the positionlessness, uh, it begins to create ideal conditions for relationships between human beings that have to do with sharing space, that have to do with um, uh, cooperation with each other, which have to do with being the kind of person you need to be with other people in order to solve a problem. All these kinds of things, I believe, um, are very human in their essence. Uh, which and and their size, uh, which makes basketball better to solve human problems, uh, which are what I'm after. You know, solving 21st century humanity's problems. Mm-hmm. And you know, in, in your book, you ended up settling on 13 principles. There, like, was that something that you kind of had to whittle down? Like, you had a couple dozen, and then you paired away at it or did you always kind of have in that ballpark around that many when you were putting it together in the draft process yeah i appreciate that question a lot uh i i, I wasn't sure i i didn't know uh what uh i the the first thing i sat down you know i i did the professor thing you mm-hmm. know i i said okay what is my thesis here yeah um what am i what, what do i really think this game stands for and i had to pull it from lived experience as well as, you know, just a lifetime of accumulated knowledge. And yeah, I said, okay, these are the ones. And I kept trying to eliminate. Uh, I, I wanted it to be less. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I felt like these were right. These There was no more, no less. It just happened to be the same number as the original rules that James Nathan came. They're not, there's no direct correlation from those rules. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a happy coincidence, a numeric homage. But yeah, I tried to I tried to make it as small, you know, nine would have been easier, eight would have been easier, 10 even, but I believe these 13 cover it. 
you kind of take those 13 principles and as you alluded to, right? Like the, it's not just basketball. We're talking about this year. It's humanity. It's life. It's how we interact with one another. And, you know, you put those principles in a vacuum and they all make sense. Right. But as we know, life is messy. It's often times best laid plans go out the window pretty quickly. Right. So when, when you're looking at basketball, as a sport and how it relates to some of the things that are going on in the world. Like, do you think we're in a better place now than we were say, you know, when the Larry birds and the magic Johnsons of the world were gracing the courts, or do you think we've kind of lost our way a little bit and maybe need to move back towards the middle slightly to find our bearings again? It's a really important question you're asking. You know, the reason I, I created this course, uh, how basketball can save the world. Do I really believe that the game of basketball uh, it, it can save the world. I try and make a good case for it. Mm-hmm. What I'm really making a case for is a provocation. I'm saying we need to think differently mm-hmm. because I do think that for a millennia, we've been following the same kinds of leaders, monarchs, military types, religious leaders, politicians, lawyers, economists. Um, and they've come up with ideas on how to solve the problems that we're facing now um, over time, uh, isms, capitalism, socialism, uh, <laughs> communism, deism, theism. And my challenge in this course is I say, well, same kinds of leaders employing the same kinds of isms over a thousand years, where has it gotten us exactly? Mm-hmm. Why do we keep repeating or, or, or getting to a progressively same, but maybe perhaps worse place why are issues of gender still unreconciled, race still unreconciled? Um, uh, why can't we be one world uh, mm-hmm. when, when there's hunger, when there's when there's disease? Um, we keep talking about the same thing. So I'm the course, the book, the idea is just simply, I don't, I mean, yeah, sure. I think perhaps in some ways we are incrementally better. But I think we are fundamentally still operating the same way. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying new way. Mm-hmm. Not revolution. Uh, doesn't mean throw everything out. Doesn't mean throw everyone out. In some cases, maybe. Mm-hmm. But in most cases, can't we start to kind of have the courage, the imagination um, to trust each other a little bit more? and to look in different places for solutions instead of the same places and the same kinds of leadership. Yeah. Well, you look at just the course of human history, like sports aren't a new thing, right? They've been around for millennia and, you know, there's all sorts of these additional things that for those who don't know or who have never coached or stepped foot in a locker room or anything like that before, they just think, oh, it's something to keep Tommy or Sally busy after school, right? Like, but there's right. so much more to it, whether it's the communication, the teamwork, the lifelong friendships that you're going to make here. Do you find it now, especially coming out of the pandemic and, you know, two plus years of lockdowns, like we're probably not going to be feeling the full effects of the mental, physical tolls that it's kind of taken on people probably still for numerous years to come. Like what role do you think sports and maybe basketball in particular really has in playing coming out of the pandemic and trying to get that sense of normalcy back to life? I think it has a huge role, um, bigger than people realize. Uh, yeah, you're asking such such important questions. Um, the, it has a huge role, and I mean a different role a role it's never had before. Look, and I say this when I I do my talks, um, I'm a college professor, I'm I'm, at New York University, it's a a, top tier research one uh, university. And I know at my institution, you can get a degree in dance, art, um, 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 you know, drama, all these things, and I think they're valid degrees. They are they're good things to get a degree in. They're portals into the human condition. By studying these things, you learn a lot about like who we are and how we operate, history and, and why, empathy. The, much of the learning for that degree is in the doing of the thing. Mm-hmm. You 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 make art, you you act, 
you 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 paint. Um, you make music. You get to do music. You do the dance. I don't understand how athletics is different. Mm-hmm. I don't. I know it's the same. They're, they're just like those other ancient cultural forms. Sports has been around, like you say, forever. It is precisely. It, it is one of the greatest portals into the human condition. Um, I believe we should validate it academically. Mm-hmm. It should be that at that level of study, it is yeah, because the playing is learning, and we just need some people to start explaining to us what we're learning when we're playing. Well, and you know, obviously, uh, I, I would venture a guess that if you had it your way, everyone would try basketball at some point in their lives. There, and you know, whether it's basketball or another sport, that that entry to sport though we're starting to see especially you look around you know the u.s canada some of the western european countries inflation is through the roof cost of living is getting higher and higher like do things like that make you worry even more so that you know some of these new immigrant families who sports probably pretty low on the totem pole of priorities for them we're going to start seeing more and more kids starting to miss out on these fundamental life opportunities that sport brings because of the simple cost and barriers to entry like that? Canada has the chance to lead in this area. They're already doing it. Um, uh, you know, when, when uh, just to take basketball, for example, basketball is created in 1891, uh, December 18th, so 1892, the world starts knowing about it. And, and, um, uh, and at that time, it was an un- unprecedented uh, era of immigration. New people were coming to the United States where uh, Canadian uh, uh, James Naismith had invented the game and he knew uh, uh, what was, you know, he was uh, conscious and that was the YMCA was conscious of what are we going to do with all these new uh, Eastern European and Southern European um, uh, uh, immigrants um, in these cramped spaces and they don't have access to, you know, the fields and even the YMCA's weren't letting. So what basketball became a, a, a space that they could demonstrate their belonging, that they, that they could uh, 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 be present um, uh, in this new place and, and, and communicate with others and join the community. The only other country that has done that uh, intentionally as part of a federal Multiculturalism policy is Canada, where for two and a half generations, basketball has been the space where in the country that takes pound for pound more immigrants than any other country in the world, basketball has been the key instrument of of knitting the multicultural social fabric together. When, When we saw the Toronto Raptors win the 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 NBA championship, uh, a moment of national unity and jubilation, uh, greater than perhaps any other World Cup, uh, you know, or something like that. And you saw this basketball team helmed by a Nigerian-born, British-raised Masai Ujiri, uh, fronted by uh, hip hop star Drake, whose whose father was Catholic uh, Canadian, uh, sorry, Catholic African American, uh, mother Jewish Canadian, um, emblemized by the Sikh immigrant Navbadia, um, who, who's the first fan and the only fan in the Basketball Hall of Fame. That was simply the culmination of two and a half generations of all that intentional federal multiculturalism. Where are they gonna go? Where where did these new immigrants to Canada go? Folks who had very little, where could they go where you need very little? Like you said, it wasn't ice and skates. Mm-hmm. It was this easy to access, by the way, it was, it, it was meant to be easy to access, place where you could just go um, and immediately begin to feel your own sense of, of belonging. So um, I, 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 the most important thing a country can do, and, and, and Canada can start to recognize this formally, because they're already doing it de facto, is that basketball was meant to be a social institution as much as athletic. Canada fulfills that promise. I, I see it happening in the Philippines too, in, a, in another really incredible way, but 
you know, what's happening in Canada with immigrants in particular, um, it's, a, it's, it's a model for the rest of the world. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the barriers to entry cost-wise. You look at it, right? What are you going to do? Go out and drop three grand on hockey skates and goalie equipment <laughs> and this, that, the other? Or are you going to go in whatever shorts and t-shirt you're already wearing? You're just going to bring a ball down to the park and play with friends, right? So it really yeah. is that social glue that can access so many more people yeah. than, you know, uh, the hockeys of the world or the footballs or whatever, where you actually need to go out and invest in some capital infrastructure and equipment in order to play, right? Right, right. Even, and it, it, even baseball or, or, or any of those things, you need all different kinds of equipment and stuff. And you also, basketball is, I think it's the only team sport where you can play by yourself. And the other thing about a basketball court, especially, you know, pickup culture, again, this is social. You know, the pickup basketball culture is an unbelievable thing because it's a place you can go where no one checks your ID, no one checks your national, your, your citizenship, and there's no credit check, there's no gatekeepers, no commissioner. The only rules, the social contract there is one that is assented to by those who are there. It's it's a rule made up by folks who are there. I don't know. It, it's the last best true communal space on earth. I don't know another space like it. No. Well, obviously, lots of great reviews for the book have come out and some very kind words from some fairly famous people as well, too. You know, you've got Mark Cuban, you've got Charles Barkley, you've got all sorts of people that have given some some blurbs for your your work here. And was there anyone who, whether it was in a formal context or even just an email or a text or a phone call or whatever, who reached out to you after this book came out that kind of surprised you at all by them extending that olive branch? That's an interesting question. Um, I, I can say it's been like incredibly gratifying to get random emails. I got one just this morning from a coach of a, of a, of a big 10 program mm -hmm. who said, I just finished your book. Oh my God. Thank you. You know, um, uh, uh, I got an email from a kid who's a co-captain of an Ivy league basketball team who came down to sit in on class. Um, so it's like, uh, it's been unbelievably, like it's exactly what I was hoping would happen. That folks who, the the, the most of the time, guys who people who run programs or people who who have somehow basketballs, uh, uh, you know, a CEO, billionaire CEO took me to lunch last week. He's seventy, still plays in a pickup game, <laughs> and he's saying you put into words what I've always felt. I just didn't know this is this is all. It, it meant all that. I knew it. I felt it. I intuited it. And so these kinds of things have been the greatest reward. Um, you know, and I've, I got to tell you, I've met, you know, you, as you know, I've been to Canada. Um, my wife is Canadian. Um, and so, you know, I've met heroes, right? Heroes like Leo Doyle, who started the Ottawa Basketball Network, the first ever of its kind organization it's it's a lobby uh for the game of basketball as a as a cultural force but also a, a an aggregator of 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 people and organizations to try and uh you know be more intentional about it i met sam ibrahim uh from toronto uh who's a remarkable entrepreneur who is trying to create social change through his entrepreneurship which is includes um, uh, a CEBL team, the the, the shooting stars, uh, um, the largest indoor basketball space in, in, you know, on earth, the playground. Um, he has multiple locations, playground global. Um, I went to his corporate retreat in Miami. I mean, it's a remarkable group of companies, the Arrow Group of companies, and I saw the future of what America could look like, mm -hmm. the future of what the world could look like. If there was real inclusion, I think Sam has that basketball consciousness. He just gave $25 million to the University of Toronto Scarborough Star mm -hmm. Entrepreneurship Center. Um, I've spoken with Jason Rubaro, um, of uh who, who's starting the 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 Calgary Surge. Mm -hmm. 
Um, again, trying to use basketball um, uh, team as a, uh, a galvanizing social, you know, social uh, as much as you know professional basketball force. I've I spent time with the great Steve Kanchalski, who I mean, what a what a great human being. Could have done anything. I think this is the kind of guy who who could be winning a Nobel Prize. Uh, he's just such a clear thinker. Um, such a such an under such understanding of of people. Um, so I, I, I've I've had great uh, you know that 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 that's what I've you know I've met similar people in Miami in LA. Um, it's been a it's just that's what I I I I'll always take away is is the people I've met that a lot of people just aren't hearing their names enough, but they're heroes to me. Well, I, I want to take a point that you just brought up there and kind of pull on that thread a little bit is the fact that, you know, it, it's not uncommon for professional sports teams to go out and have a charitable arm. But a lot of the times you'll hear news of, okay, so-and-so is building a baseball field or building a community hockey rink and all of that. But it kind of stops at that, right? Like we, we've given the money to a charity or we've built a, a thing and we're kind of wiping our hands and walking away now, right? But basketball by and large seems to have its roots run a little bit deeper in the communities that it serves and you know you mentioned the cebl a couple of times there and what is it do you think that not only resonates with the communities that they serve but really make them ingratiate themselves and actually get out there and you know pound the flesh shake hands kiss babies all of that where some of the other sports are happier to maybe so write a check and that's the extent of their contributions <laughs> Yeah, look, I, I'd be uh, uh, intellectually inconsistent if I didn't say it started with the game itself. Um, you know, Sam Ibrahim knows what the game means because he's been in it. Mm -hmm. And so that, just like I, I, I try to say in the book and, and in my course, um, I, this philosophy of basketball, it's a, it's a way you walk in the world. It's a way you meet people. It's, uh, it, it's, the, it's a language of eye contact, of peripheral vision, of understanding how to give and take with people in shared space. Mm -hmm. And when you have that ingrained in you physically uh, and, 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 and emotionally and psychologically and spiritually, it can't help but manifest in the way you run a business, in the way you are in your personal relationships, your family. Um, so, you know, I, the, the CEBL owners, you know, Sam, Jason, who I, I've just started meeting them. Uh, I met folks in the Ottawa Blackjacks. I felt the same thing. That real, they're in touch with the people of their communities. Um, the basketball teams are sure they want to win. That's fun, um, but these are platforms uh, for change, for political leadership, for communal leadership, and. I do believe that the reason why it works, the reason why it works is because the folks in those communities speak the same language and they know that it's real. They truth is recognized. You know, even the NBA, which I tell my students, I say, listen, this is first thing I say, this is not a course about the NBA or the mm -hmm. WNBA. Those are those are aggressive for profit, private. Um, uh, uh, you know, antitrust exempt, uh, you know, uh, commercial organizations. But, you know, if you want to compare the basketball league with the other leagues, the other sports leagues, I would say the basketball leagues score much higher on uh, social, real social impact and social change kind of activity. Not perfect, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, because they're, they're profit motive driven, but they're, and I believe that's because of the game. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I believe the game makes you a better person uh, in a little bit bigger ways than perhaps other sports. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting, right? Because you, you look at just how the culture of the sports are even set up, right? Let, well, let's take hockey as an example. You talk to any post-game interview is the most bland 
you know, r repeating pucks in deep. Yeah. Team first. Yeah. Oh no. He just came prepared one shift at a time and, you know, change the name who said it, Crosby, McDavid, Malcolm, like whoever, <laughs> like it, it's yeah. all the same. Whereas yeah. basketball, you ask yeah. Jimmy Butler something versus LeBron versus Giannis, they're going to give you three drastically different answers to how they, they saw things unfold or how they would approach that situation. So it, it's almost as though basketball celebrates the individual that's playing a collective team sport whereas right. hockey kind of drills in the team first you know suppress your personality conform uh, uh, by contrast right yes and uh both and um uh yeah i'm glad you mentioned Giannis because i i i i've been enjoying the kind of post game conferences of butler and jokic so much lately I forgot that wonderful press conference from Giannis mm -hmm. uh, where the guy said, you consider this season a failure. And he, he explained him what, <laughs> what, what does that mean? I believe that the NBA has always as a business, you know, been kind of ahead, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they, they're the first to go to cable. They're first to do a lot of things just as a business. And in a superstar league, is that's what everybody likes to call them, right? You're starting to see the superstars talk in a way that I believe is connected to the zeitgeist of, of, of the young people of the 21st century who are hollering for change, who are protesting for change. They're saying, you know, the young people in the pandemic and stuff it's like, you don't get it, man. Like, like you don't have to like like give us diversity training. We are diverse. You don't have to explain to us like how to be like, you know, accept people's gender identity. We, we It's no big deal to us. We know that that's the way it is. And then you start to like, like I saw Jokic. He's hilarious. They keep talking to him after every game. They're like, you know, you're just, you, you know, how, I don't know if you saw that wonderful press conference where the guy's like, you know, uh, you've always said you're not the best player, but you want to be the best player. And in a star league, how important is it to be the best player if you're not the best? And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, <laughs> I'm confused. Yeah. He's just like, what the hell are you talking? And when Butler said, they're my teammates, they're not role players. And, 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 and when Spolstra, you know, he had to apologize, right? Because, uh, uh, Holly Rowe, or no, no, was, was it um, Ramona Shelburne? Ramona Shelburne asked the question. She said, "Hey, is it? it yeah, just, just keep. Is that what it works? You just yeah. make uh, him score, Jokic score, and then he can't be effective the rest of the game." And he's like, "You don't understand." And, and he wasn't eating. By the way, I watched it just this morning again. I mean, he didn't attack her. He was saying anybody who says that because she wasn't saying she said. She said yeah, but anybody who says that doesn't has no idea how this guy like plays the entire game of basketball. Yeah. Um, and so I'm saying all this because I think that right now you're watching two teams that emphasize that, that de-emphasize the superstardom of their players, the superstardom of their players deflect share um, I'm talking about Butler. I'm talking about Jokic, you know, and, 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 and so they're superstars only because everybody puts the attention on them. I mean, Jamal Murray is, 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 is incredible, man. Um, um, any one of those guys, Aaron Gordon, um, um, you know, uh, Porter, just move. Jokic will find you. Mm -hmm. um, and they know it. And Jokic knows it. And he knows that they know it. It's a great story in my book um, where, um, uh, sorry to go on about this. It's so important though, because basketball leads the way. Mm -hmm. There was an old the Shaquille O'Neal. There was a time when he was like so dominant, right? Nobody could stop him. He was no one. Had, he, he was just physically superior to everyone in that run. And 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 he had to foul him. That's all you could do. Uh, he was just so much bigger and, and more skilled. And 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 so, Sonny Hill, a Hall of Famer, on a radio show interviews Bill Russell. And because Russell had stopped the Goliath of his day, of course, well, Chamberlain Russell won more championships than anyone by far, 11 championships. And Sonny Hill says to Russell, Bill, how would you stop Shaquille O'Neal? And I'll never forget it. 
he paused for like you know felt like to me like 10 full seconds probably was three seconds he's like i wouldn't and son he was like you wouldn't bill you're bill russell man you wouldn't how why what are you talking about bill's like i wouldn't my team would mm -hmm. that's basketball that's the whole game it's it's a whole game played by the whole team and one player does not conceive of himself doing or herself doing anything on the court without understanding what the other players are doing. This is where we're headed as a society. It doesn't mean there isn't a Steph Curry who does remarkable things. It doesn't mean there isn't a super, someone who has the you know really special talents. It just means they don't see themselves as separate or apart or better or more important than the other four because the game is a game of five. Well, you've brought up a few times now, for those that are listening here, the fact that this is not just a basketball book, but you actually teach a basketball course as well, too, at, at NYU. And first of all, before I, I ask my follow-up question, what was the process like of trying to get that approved as a course by the school itself? Because a bunch of academics might not gravitate towards that as a learning opportunity as quickly as others would. Right. They didn't. Um, <laughs> even though I had established myself quite well uh, at, at IU, I had won every award you can win. I won the highest teaching award, the distinguished teaching and, 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 you know, everything. And and I'd come to them. I said, look, I've thought, thought a lot about this. Here's the syllabus. How basketball saved the world? Right? No. Mm -hmm. And they were like, yeah, no, that's a terrible, that's not even course. <laughs> what do you, no. And I begged them. They said, well, you can run a pilot in the summer. Mm -hmm. See what happens. And I did. And uh, we had 28 students um, that summer for a, for a non-required elective. It was kind of the world record. We drew from all different programs, uh, dance program, uh, uh, philosophy program, um, teaching program, individualized studies. Sure, we had sports management students. And then uh, uh, a kid from Tulane who just read about it had to be there. And we had a remarkable experience. The NBA even gave us a VIP suite at the draft at the Barclays Center that summer. It was incredible. We went up to the outdoor court stuff. And so that's what it took. Yeah. And then we ran it again in a formal, you know, in the traditional spring semester that year. I got 100 students and we've been off to the races ever since. Well, you've had some absolutely phenomenal people come in and do some guest lectures and speaking uh, arrangements and everything from NBA players, WNBA players, Hall of Fame coaches, you you name it, right? So the question that I had is not necessarily who is the biggest name that came in, but who was someone that came in that connected with the students, perhaps on the deepest level throughout the years that you've been putting this on here? You know, the superstars, right? They're always, uh, you're right, like Sue Bird, Dr. J. I mean, it's been incredible. But, you know, uh, uh, yeah, not last year, but the year before. There's so many, but I, I, I remember Bessel van der Kolk, who some students hadn't heard of. Uh, he He's written a book called The Body Keeps the Score. Um, it's about trauma. He's redefined our understanding of what trauma is and that it's more perhaps a normal condition than an abnormal one. And, and people with trauma walk through the world with such a searing sense of isolation. They can't connect because they're seeing the world through a lens of threat. They feel, they experience the trauma as if it's happening right now, even though it's happened in the past. What are the spaces that they can go to? What are the things they can do? He says group rhythmic activities like group sing, group dancing, drum circle. And he explicitly says basketball. This guy's book, The Body Keeps the Score, has been on the bestseller list for like 244 straight weeks. And he came to class. And he hasn't got out of bed for less than $50,000. And I reached out to him. I said, would you come to class? He says, you know, I don't get out of bed for less than $50,000. said, you know what? I'm coming to your class because what you're doing is so important. And he he was, an, I mean, what an articulate human being. What a, the way he, he frayed the powerful way he took such complex concepts and showed us how the space of basketball can make us feel better, can make us feel less lonely, can replace isolation with connection, can replace uh, loneliness with imagination um, and, and feeling a part of 
So I, I, he comes to mind immediately. Uh, uh, he really affected me greatly, as you can mm -hmm. see. Um, but uh, I, I know so many students are like, can my mom sit in on this one? You know, so uh, <laughs> nice. he was great. Bessel was great. So basketball has come a long way since the peach baskets were hung up there. And, you know, we, we've seen a couple different iterations of it just even in the last couple of decades right you look at who's really shaped the game and you know michael jordan obviously had a huge effect on the game in the late 80s and early 90s and yeah. he's even blossomed it beyond just the basketball court as well too with some of his off-court stuff then it was the, you know the lebrons the steph curry's the three-point revolution like what do you think is that next step for the sport is it and it might not even have to do with the actual sport itself it could be as you alluded to earlier there athletes becoming more vocal and you know talking about social issues like what do you think is the next big leap that basketball kind of takes my hope is that it becomes less about the the nba the star players i mean the nba continues to be the greatest showcase for the demonstration of these principles, the highest kind of level of, of artistry and genius. But my hope is that um, countries start seeing this uh, as, a, as, a, as a national value, um, that from the ground up, from the moment you're a kid, that people start to say these spaces, these principles, um, I understand, even if you're, you know, it's not if you're a great player. It's can you do that exercise where you go to a space and nobody knows each other and then you find ways of knowing each other, that basic exercise. Um, I want basketball and other sports to be placed much higher in the national value system. I don't want it to be just about developing elite athletics. I want sports to be understood as educational, as social, as ways of solving loneliness, as ways of uniting people. Uh, so that that's my hope, is that it, it is seen as a language. Well, I, I can't think of a better way to end the episode than with that answer right there. So, David, thank you so much for coming on and speaking about all things basketball, your, your book, what you hope basketball can do to change the world for those that are listening the book is out there right now how basketball can save the world thanks so much for stopping by today i enjoyed this so much thank you for such such an excellent discussion And that's a wrap for another episode of the Dying Sports Podcast on the Dying Sports Podcast Network. As always, a huge thank you goes out to our guest today, author and New York University professor David Hollander. Great chatting all things basketball and the impact that sport can have on and off the court. If you haven't already, go out and check out his book, How Basketball Can Save the World. It's available at bookstores near you. Got some more great guests coming up in the near future. If you haven't already, make sure to drop a subscription to our podcast. Head over to dinespressbox.com for breaking news or check out our YouTube page today. Till next time, folks, stay safe. We'll see you in a bit.